Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment, you're nailing it, and the next, you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Laura Froyan, and on this week's episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast, we're going to be talking with Britt Hawthorne. She is the author of a beautiful new book, Raising Anti-Racist Children, and we are going to get dig into the hows and the whys of this really important topic. So, Britt, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. It's always fun when I get to interview someone that I've been avidly following for a while, so I'm kind of fangirling a little bit here. Britt, welcome. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Beautiful. Thank you so much for having me, creating space, sharing space. I really appreciate it. I am, I, I always kind of tell the quick and easy is that I am first and foremost a storyteller. I love telling stories. I'm a content creator. What I love to do on my downtime and professionally, I'm an anti-bias, anti-racist facilitator. I work with educators across the country and how do we help our classrooms to become places where they're inclusive, where justice exists and thrives. And then at home with caregivers, I help caregivers raise empathetic, compassionate, justice-centered children as well. So everything usually just revolves around justice. What a beautiful mission, though, to have and purpose. And I think that lots of the folks who are listening to this identify with this. Our goal when raising our kids is to create a world that's more fair and equitable and just. And that starts at home. It starts with our little kids. And I, I love that your book centers on some very practical pieces of and first steps for how we can get started on creating that more fair and equitable world for our kids. So can you start us off there? What are some things like if we're just starting out on this journey, what would our first steps be? That's a beautiful question. One I usually get asked um, quite a bit. And what I always tell folks is that your first step really should be looking for community. That's really your first step. And so for me, when I got into anti-racist work, I did not grow up knowing that phrase. I had never heard of it until I was well into my years of teaching. And oftentimes in education, we hear a lot about an emphasis on multicultural education and why diversity is so important. And yet when we are doing the strategies of multicultural education and we know that diversity is important, we still have inequities that exist both on a structural level, but then just every day in the classroom, 
when we have children that say, that's not fair, right? They cut me in line. That's not fair. They took the scissors. That's not fair. Why do those people live underneath the bridge? So there's some really concrete things that children are noticing from a very young age. And so when you start to do this work, what I find is when you find your people, you find your community. For me, I I found a group on Facebook um, of like-minded educators that was doing this work. I then was able to really challenge some of the held beliefs that I had. I was able to grow in the accurate language that I was using. So instead of, you know, if a learner or a child asking, you know, why do those people live underneath the bridge? Instead of saying, oh, the homeless, it's really the people who are experiencing homelessness, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this emphasis on language so that the people have dignity, that we know that people have value and that people are worthy to have their needs met. So once you find your community, they can offer you perspectives that you didn't think about before, but they can also hold you accountable, right? I will get this question, particularly from white folks of how do I know maybe when I should start leading this work or sharing the work or, you know, or what if I feel like I, I'm so nervous I might mess up, Mm. right? I might say the wrong thing or what if I cause harm? When you have a really strong community, you can feel confident that your community will hold you accountable, right? So I can go and I can work with other caregivers. And this has happened before where I was giving a workshop one time, me and it was another presenter was giving a workshop and a friend of ours held us accountable. She texted me and said, Hey, I have to have a critical conversation with you. Are you free? I wasn't doing anything, but I had my feet in the pool. So I said, okay, sure. Call me up. And she calls me and she's like, okay, are you in a space to hear some truth? And I was like, I'm at the pool. So I'm in water. I'm feeling really good. Yes. I'm in a space to hear truth. And she said, you know, I want you to think about the optics of you and the other person that was leading the workshop was actually a little bit lighter than me of two very, very light skinned people leading this work. And I wonder if you could have created space for darker skinned folks or folks of a different racial identity. And even though it was still a gut punch, right? It's still Mm -hmm. like, how could I have done that? I do this for a living. And it was like, you're right. Thank you so much for giving me the gift of truth. Thank you for holding me accountable. I'm going to call my co-presenter and we can change it. Like things can be changed, right? I am the creator of that workshop. So I would say start with community. Yeah. And there's a piece there I feel that I just want to pull out and highlight is that willingness to be vulnerable and to be perfectly and imperfectly human, you know, to really just lean into our humanity and the reality that we all came up in this cultural soup, that we all picked up things from our upbringing. We all have biases and parts that we are unaware of that we need to have called to our attention. Um, and seeing that as a gift, as you, as you put it, the gift of truth was, was beautiful. And I think really hard and takes, I, from my experience, takes practice time and time again, really practicing with that vulnerability. And I think we ask ourselves to do that in our parenting, just in conscious parenting and rethinking the way we discipline our kids and rethinking the way we view whining or behaviors, you know, and this is an extension of that. It's the 
a big picture piece of it, right? Absolutely. And, and that perfectionism, right? We ask children all of the time, or better, we tell children all of the time, it's okay to make mistakes. <laughs> Right? We're such but hypocrites, often, right? <laughs> I know, but like, how, how often do we model making mm-hmm. mistakes? So, like, from that conversation, our around our dinner table, I could say, "Hey, you know what? Someone so called me today, and guess what she told me?" And I can share that with my children. Of like, I'm not going to get it right, and I can say, "You know what? It made me feel terrible. I felt really guilty, and I almost kind of teetered into feeling a bit ashamed." that I didn't notice it before, but then I can tell my children. So, you know what I'm telling myself tonight? I made a mistake. I'm not a mistake. I made a mistake. I'm not Mm. a mistake. Right. It's that. And that is something when we think about how we live in a racist society, there's these values that uphold racism. And one of those values is perfectionism, right? That upholds it. And so when folks come to me and they say, well, Brett, I'm so nervous. What if they think that I'm being judgmental? Or what if I say the wrong thing? Or what if all of these what ifs, I'm like, oh, you're upholding perfectionism right now. And it's mm-hmm. not that any of us learned perfectionism because someone said, I expect you to be perfect. We learn perfectionism by the way that when we make mistakes, people respond to us. Yeah. And oftentimes we learn that from our parents from the very beginning. It's how they responded to the mistakes that we made. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And so we're doing this, this kind of intergenerational change, this work, right, mm-hmm. of showing up differently for, for our kids and for our communities. And I'm just thinking about folks who might be feeling a little bit of pushback right now, who might be listening. And I think a lot of that comes from a place of vulnerability, of kind of wanting to, it to not be me, to not be true for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you have any, any words or thoughts or just things to, to sit with for a little bit. Cause I, I really admired that in your book, the invitation to do this work and to understand that it will be uncomfortable. There will be resistance with, that arises within you. And those are invitations to look deeper. And so I'm kind of curious if we can touch on that, on that, if the resistance kind of bubbles up within us. Yes, the resistance definitely bubbles up within us. And oftentimes, professionally, when I go and I work with educators, folks kind of self-segregate into two different groups. I know it all. I've done the trainings. I've read the books, right? And I know nothing. My work really is to get folks into a third group that just says, I'm learning and I'm unlearning and I'm relearning, right? And so when we start to approach this with curiosity and openness, Everything from there will change and it will grow the same way that we ask children to approach learning how to ride a bike or learning how to swim for the first time, right? It's not to say, oh, I already know how to swim. And you're the mom and you're like, "Uh, no, I've seen you in the pool. You don't know how to swim, (laughs) right? And we also don't want our child to say, I don't know how to swim at all. So I'm just going to stay in the shallow water because I don't know anything. And you're like, no, you, you, you do know how to swim. You're learning to swim. We're practicing. Let's go ahead and try five, 10 minutes, and then you can go play. And so really when that resistance starts to show up, we can ask ourselves, hmm, I wonder if I'm putting myself in one of these binary kind of groups mm-hmm. instead of, hmm, I wonder if I'm putting myself in learning, unlearning, and relearning. And how can I then respond with curiosity 
rather than fear. Now there's this story I have with Kobe. At the time he was eight years old and he was in piano lessons. And so I was downstairs, I was talking to my partner and I was sharing about a winter piano recital. And I can hear Kobe from upstairs and he goes, I'm not doing it. And I like look upstairs, had no idea he was listening. And I said, Kobe, come here. And so he comes down the stairs and I watch him. And I said, how about you ask me three questions? And then we go from there. And he goes, well, I don't even know what a piano recital is. Right? And so what I know from there is that resistance showed up in him for, for trying something new. And I don't know in his mind what he kind of drew as a conclusion of piano recital, but whatever it was, he was like, uh-uh, I'm not touching it. That's not for me. And so I, yep, not for me. So I said, okay, why don't we just YouTube some piano recitals and check it out. And by the end of it, he was so excited. You know, he was going to get slacks and a turtleneck and he was like very <laughs> excited for the piano recital. And I told him, I said, you know, Kobe, anytime, you know, a big feeling shows up in your body. And it feels like maybe it's fear or worry or anxiousness. I said, just start to ask yourself some questions. Like, what do I know? What do I, what is it that I don't know? Who can I ask for help? And doing anti-racist work is the same way. When that resistance shows up, respond with curiosity. I love curiosity so much. It's one of my favorite things (laughs) in the world. Curiosity and compassion, I feel like are tied for, you know, just my two favorite C words, but yeah, I think leaning into that curiosity, that's such a beautiful parenting moment to share with us. Thank you for that. And I like too, how it's not just because you had, you had to get curious with yourself. So it's not just that you held him in a space of curiosity for himself, but you had to step into that for yourself too. You had to embody it so that he could embody it for himself. Do you know what I mean? That allowed me to practice empathy with him in that moment because I knew where he was coming from. I've been there too. When, when something is new and I've been there where I've responded with fear and I needed someone to remind me, respond with curiosity. And then let's just go from there, right? This work is by invitation. It's not by demand. And so this work is about personal growth and this work is also about justice too. So I'm very curious about I wonder what advantages I receive simply because I belong to certain groups, right? I'm curious about that, not fearful to figure it out. And I find that some people are fearful to figure out their advantaged identities. For me, that's kind of where the fun starts because that's where I get to now leverage. That's the origin story of my advocacy work. So I identify as cisgender. I am not trans. And so by me knowing that and knowing that I'm advantaged in this society by being cisgender, that then becomes the origin of my advocacy work. I think to myself, hmm, I'm curious. I wonder how I can make a space when I'm in it. How can I make a space safe for trans folks? What is my work, right? Not their work to teach me or educate me. What is my work then to show up in that space? And when that space, not if, but when that space becomes harmful, violent, whether physical or symbolic. Again, my advocacy work, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? How am I going to physically use my body, right? To shield someone or to turn the attention to me or to look at the person, right? And just say, hey, you want to start a conversation about coffee right now? Right? Those are all things 
that when we start to get curious and honest about who we are, the advantages and disadvantages that we receive because we live in this society, that's where then I start to figure out how do I start to do the work. And with our children, we also then have to be in reality about their identities. Sometimes we share the same identity and sometimes we don't. And so I want my children to be very aware I'm raising two boys, right? I want them to understand the ways that they're advantaged in this society by being boys so that they can leverage that for fairness. They can leverage that for justice. How are you doing that? What does that sound like and look like in practice? You know what? Yesterday we were watching a documentary called Mission Blue. I think I got the name right. And it's a fascinating documentary. We're only halfway through. And the scientist who's featured in the documentary, I'm going to look up her name really quick because I don't, I didn't know who she was before. And now I'm like, how could I have not known who she was? Her name is Sylvia Earle. So Dr. Sylvia Earle. And in that documentary, they showed a real clip of um, some media that was portraying a mission that she went on back in the 19, either 60s or 70s. And the way they talked about it was, I think it was like 60 um, people went on this mission to go and explore the deep blue ocean. And the way they highlighted the five women versus the way they highlighted the men was, was so clear and sexist. So we're sitting there, we're watching it as a family. And they said, you know, the men, they're competent, they're strong, they're brave, they're going to go explore the ocean. And then they showed the women, they said, and then, then we have these five women. And they said, oh, they called them attractive. They said, then we have these five attractive women who are there to help the explorers. So the way they even set it up. So I sat there and I waited to hear, you know, did my husband say anything? Are my children going to say anything? And finally, our youngest, Kobe, was like, that was so sexist, the way they talked about the women. And then our oldest, um, who's now 15, and he's like, and the way they talked about the men. He was like, I mean, maybe some of the men weren't that strong, but they were brilliant, right? And so those are things, when we give our children that language and we start to give them the framework of what is sexism, it's a personal prejudice plus a systemic misuse and abuse of power by institutions, right? We give them that language and then we practice modeling it with them, right? So when they're reading books, we were reading a book about RBG and it was talking how um, when she was a college professor, she went to the dean and she wanted to have equal pay. And the dean had responded and said, basically, you should just be happy that you even have a job here because you're a woman. So when Kobe was reading that, Kobe was like, that's womanist. And I started laughing. I was like, okay, this is, this is very, very close, right? But it's not, man, that was a really bad thing that happened to her. Or gosh, that dean was being so mean or rude or unkind. Right? There is an accurate language. That is sexism. And sexism has real life impacts and consequences. And what does that look like every day? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking a lot right now about the conversation that um, has been kind of ongoing these past couple of years regarding critical race theory and schools. And a lot of the people that I've been hearing with the pushback is that they don't want to raise issues that kids aren't aware of and teach them, mm-hmm. you know, to be sexist you know, by pointing it out to them. There was a part in your book where you said that that's really like diminishing to to kids, first of all, because it really implies that kids aren't overtly 
brilliant and aware of all of these things happening anyway. And I, so I, I just, I really like that you're talking about that. It's just giving them language for things that they're going to be noticing and seeing anyway. Yes. Both in the contemporary existence, right. In their lives, they notice it, they witness it, they experience it. But also whenever we're teaching, when we're doing really, really good teaching in schools and we're teaching honest history, they're also experiencing it. I think it's fascinating. You know, I went through school and I learned about slavery in several different classes and no one ever used the term racist. Like, how do we talk about slavery without talking about the system that was created in order to allow slavery to happen? You know, sometimes what, what happens is we've picked up ideas that we haven't yet put down mm-hmm. and, and we need to work to put that down. And it's okay to share that with our children. This is the way that I learned it. I wonder how you're learning it now. And children today, as always, but especially today, I feel like are compassionate, they're empathetic, they're open-minded, they're so caring, they're so brilliant. And we have to raise our expectations as caregivers, right? We have to have a higher standard of how am I going to meet this? How am I going to support them and them reaching their fullest potential? Trying to approach raising a child as being innocent by only coddling ignorance is negligent. If we want children to be innocent, if we want children to truly be innocent, then we would raise anti-racist children, Mm -hmm. right? So that they can see what is innocence versus guilty, So first, I think people have to think about what is innocence to them, right? And to me, innocence is right. It is what is right, both morally, ethically. It's innocence, right? When you are free from wrongdoing. And so if I want my child to be free from wrongdoing, if I want to make sure that my child is not only embracing who they are, they have self-love for who they are and their many identities, but they're also embracing people for their many identities. They feel comfortable and competent around human diversity, right? And they have a respectful curiosity when they're unsure. That, to me, is innocence. Not when a child... Um, you know, show signs of pre-prejudice, when they show signs of fear, discomfort, when they other people, right? When they use language that's rooted in classism or homophobia or transphobia or racism, right? And what we know about children is children as young as three months are going to look at faces that match the race of their caregiver than any other faces. So at that point, we know that biases start to develop at three months, Biases are simply shortcuts our brains are making, not good or bad, not the best. They're just shortcuts that they're making. They're saying, gosh, you look like someone who's going to care for me. So we know by three months, their brains are already starting to draw conclusions. We know by two years, children can use race to reason about a person's behavior, right? If someone's happy, sad, smart, helpful, mean, again, these are biases. They're drawing conclusions based off of what we as the parents are providing them messages around. We know that by four years old, children have a heightened, they, it can be the time where they have the most verbal expressions of pre-prejudice. Tell so, me, quick, what does that term mean, pre-prejudice, yeah, okay. if, if someone hasn't heard it before? 
Yeah, pre-prejudice is understanding that children cognitively have limited understandings of people and their world because they're only four. They're inexperienced. (laughs) Oh my gosh, they're so inexperienced. And so it's saying they have limited cognitive experiences and that pre-prejudice can be where they're othering a child, excluding a child. It can show, can mean that they have signs of fear, discomfort about differences, right? All of that can be pre-prejudice. And another reason why we use that term is because when they're that young, just one simple conversation or one new experience will help them draw a more accurate conclusion, right? That is thinking about, I want my child to be innocent. I want my child to be free of the prejudice that hold them back from reaching their fullest potential, that hold them back from having loving relationships. Oftentimes, folks of Asian descent will report how non-Asian children will take their fingers and will pull their eyes to kind of dramatically slant their eyes. You worked in an early childhood setting that's probably not news to you that it happens. We just had, it went viral on Instagram a couple years ago. We're a renowned chef and it was the head chef and all of the other chefs in the kitchen had did that in a post trying to be funny. That is rooted in anti-Asian racism, something they probably picked up along the way and haven't put it down, right? That's not innocent. And so when a child does that and we can respond with what you just did was not okay, Right. They do have more almond-shaped eyes than you, and your eyes are rounder than theirs, right? But that is not a way that we make friends. Mm-hmm. It's okay to set those firm boundaries. It's okay to tell your child, I want you to put that down, instead of ignoring it, mm-hmm. right? Looking away, and also instead of shutting it down, by saying, oh, don't do that. But not explaining, not giving young children language for why we don't do it. Right. Shaming them for it, but mm-hmm. not giving them context and narrative to make sense of yes. why it was wrong. Yes. So this is critical work that you're talking about here. And I think for some can feel really overwhelming. And what I love about your book and why I think every parent should own it is that it's very practical. Or There's I mean, there's sample emails, there's sample scripts. It's very, very practical, which I think is, it's so easy on topics like this to stay, stay in the theoretical and you dive so deep in your beautiful book. Is there something practical that parents who are listening right now can be doing on a daily basis with their kids? You know, I think going right to choosing books, oftentimes the folks that are going to be listening to our podcast and that are following us are also book lovers themselves. And so oftentimes we have these really print rich environments at home. And so I think that books can be an incredible tool for caregivers to use with their children. And there's different levels that you can use books to. Sometimes we can use books as a way to create thriving communities. And so instead of purchasing books and using it as just in my home for my individual child, we want to change that. And we say, you know what, we're going to go to the public library because we're going to share books and people are going to share books with us. We build strong communities. And so you can shift it that way. And then your children also get to know other folks, neighbors, community members as well. 
That's one way. Another way to use books is really to say, how can I help my child to feel really good about who they are and their many identities? And so if you have a black child, if you have a child of color, really looking to stock books in your home that will offer your child a mirror, right? And they can have language, they can see themselves, they can feel comfortable and affirmed. I have a story in here I tell about Kobe. He started listening to the Harry Potter books pretty young because his older brother was reading them. And so he wasn't reading words just yet, but he could listen. And one time they introduced a character named Lee Jordan, and they described Lee Jordan as a black boy with dreadlocks. And Kobe, about six years old, said, well, that's odd. I wonder why the author said he was black. So I responded with curiosity. I said, why do you think the author wrote it? Kobe said, well, Lee Jordan must really be proud to be black. And I said, "Um, yeah, maybe. And then he goes, because Harry didn't say he was black. And I was like, hmm, let's go a little deeper here. So again, respond with curiosity. I said, well, I wonder, is Harry black? Kobe laughed and said, of course. And I thought that was so interesting because Kobe had listened to the books and because we affirmed his black racial identity so much, Kobe truly saw the characters that he was listening to as mirrors to him, Mm -hmm. right? He saw the villain, the friend, the hero, everyone was black. And so you can use books to help with self-love. You can also use books as a window, right? Into someone else's experience. So books can be an incredible tool where you can talk about different skin tones. You can talk about eye shapes. You can talk about, oh, I wonder who's in their family, who lives in their home. Look how their house is different than our house. So we're normalizing differences and celebrating. Last but not least, you can talk about books as a way to talk about justice. So reading stories, Rosa Parks, Cesar Chavez, we're reading those stories to say, what was unfair in this story? Who did that harm? Who caused the harm? What are some things that maybe they did to solve the injustice, the unfairness? What are some things that you could do if that was you, right? So we could also use books as a tool to really start discussing advocacy and activism in very practical, developmentally appropriate ways. I love that. Okay. And so one thing that I have also found with my library is that the librarian is always open to suggestions. So if there are books that your library doesn't have that you feel it should have, our children's librarian almost always will will either get them or make sure that they're in the system somewhere in in our library system. So I I love I love public yes. libraries so much. Oh my gosh, they are the heartbeat <laughs> of our communities, right? Where they offer people places like in, I live in Houston, and so it can be very hot. It can be a cooling space yeah. for folks, right? So it's really a space of safety and refuge. But it offers internet. They have laptops, like when our middle schooler, he had to do projects and we didn't have another device for him. He could check out a laptop. They offer so many books and story times, activities. And something else you just made me think about, Laura, is that you can also, with your parenting partners and with your children, make some clear expectations about books. You can have clear expectations to say, We want to make sure we're reading books that center women, or we want to make sure we're Mm -hmm. reading books that center disabled stories. And when you make that commitment together, you have that expectation together, like every third book, 
right? And the goal isn't for it to become a checklist it's so that it ends up becoming embedded naturally. Oftentimes the way that we create habits is by intentionally setting them. And then before we know it, it ends up becoming our culture, mm-hmm. right? So we want that then to become our culture that our children are picking up. Yeah. I love that too. That's something that I, I think it's the the book piece is kind of very easy way to get started because yes. yeah, I mean, love books. I, we've been really intentional too in making sure that we're centering stories that are told in, in folks' own voices too. So that's mm-hmm. something that's been really important that we look not just for diversity of characters and stories, but who's writing the story, whose voice is being actually being told and heard in it. Like we've been loving the Birch Bark House series. And I'm, I'm kind of, you know, so we're, we're, my kids are older. So mine are nine and a half and seven. And we're really moving into being able to critically examine older books too, which is, has been an interesting thing. We're reading the, the Mrs. Piggle Wiggle series right now, which is, has lots of problems going on in it. Um, but it's led to some really rich discussions, primarily about parenting styles, because there's a lot of spanking in it. But I think that there is, when we're talking about book diversity, I think it's important to have opportunities within the context of a fictional story to critically examine and and take a look at, you know, when I read this as a child, no one helped me contextualize this. No one gave me the language for what I was reading. And now my kids can have a different experience with that. You know what I mean? Yes. And what you're really saying too, is that I'm not going to normalize harm is really, is really what I hear you saying, right? Like as a child, I think about the amount of times in school in particular, that we read stories of harm, right? And it could be fictional, but it also could be historical stories. And that no one helped us to critically examine these stories of this wasn't right. It was never okay, right? It wasn't because it was a period of time. We shouldn't let people off of the hook. And so what could we do if it still happens today to stop it, right? Mm -hmm. I think that so often kids can get the message of normalizing harm of that it was okay to steal land or it was okay to enslave people because it was a thing of the time. Children knew then, just like children know today, it is never okay to steal people's things or to steal human beings or to sell human beings. Children know that. And so, but if we don't critically examine with our children, they can draw those inaccurate conclusions and then they can see things like, well, it was just a thing of a time. Well, we don't do that really. anymore. Yes, because it's like the people then, why did we have thousands upon thousands of enslaved Africans that ran away? Because they certainly knew it wasn't right mm-hmm. to try to say like, oh, people just didn't know. Instead of going in and saying, hey, how do we examine this? And is it okay to hit other people? Hmm. Well, what if it's the people that you made? Is it okay to hit them because you made them, right? And really just let it sit there and let your children think about it. Hmm. I wonder when it would be a time if it's ever okay to hit someone, right? In our household, do we ever think that it's okay to hit someone? And then because children can normalize things, they can normalize, well, they spanked me out of love, right? They knew what was best. We really want to challenge that that strong message that they can pick up from media, that they can pick up from friends, that they can pick up at school. We really want to challenge that strong message with clear, intentional language and conversations. 
Mm. Yes. Thank you, Britt, for guiding those of us who maybe have never practiced those conversations before or have never had the opportunity or been brave enough to put ourselves in a situation to learn. I, this is a wonderful first step and it's a beautiful gift to your global community. I want to end with asking you, you know, there's a, there's a part in the book where you very clearly delineate um, between being ally and a co-conspirator. And I'm curious about as folks are moving into those spaces, how they can go about bringing their children with them, because we're, we're focusing in on, on raising anti-racist children. I know that, you know, right now with the recent Supreme Court rulings. There's been a lot of kids at a lot of protests. I'm just kind of curious about kind of moving kids into those spaces in meaningful ways. One thing that's really important and helpful, I think, for caregivers as we want to move is that there's moving from an ally. First of all, being an ally is fine. It's not good or bad. And, and, I'm, and I'm saying that because I'm noticing some, some shifts that are happening mainstream shift saying it's not enough to be an ally or I don't want your allyship or something like that. Right. Allyship is oftentimes the first places that we're starting and we bring our kids into the conversations of just simply saying, Hey, this is something I learned today. I learned this new link, this new word or this new phrase, or I started following this new account and look at all of the stuff that they're sharing. Right. So you, we bring our children in by just simply modeling, naming what I didn't know and naming that I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. We also start to move from ally into accomplice when we start to make things actionable in our household. When we start to have a clear awareness of who am I, those identities that I hold, and inside the book I have some practices for you to kind of figure out our identities that we hold, our social identities, and then what? how are we going to leverage that? So in our household, for instance, our children most certainly know that we are middle class. They know what that means. They know by being middle class, what are some things that we can access that are super easy for us to access and things that maybe we can't access because we're not upper class, right? Or wealthy. And then from there it was, but we do experience an immunity from being middle class. So how are we going to leverage that? So we make sharing a big um, part of our work, our weekly work, our monthly work. So it's donating to the Houston Food Bank. Um, sometimes it could be monetary donations, but sometimes it's uh, shopping. When we go, we go to the grocery store, I could give my children 20 bucks. And it's like, we could spend this 20 bucks at Starbucks or you could get peanut butter worth $20, right? Let's mm-hmm. think about that. And so it's simply making that routine of shopping or having milk crates in your household, having conversations with your children about what do we do with a toy that we're not using, we're not benefiting from. Can we share that with someone else? Can we donate that? And so it's really important as we move from allyship to accomplice and then co-conspirator that we're moving into actions, sustainable actions that we hope our children will continue to do. Then becoming a co-conspirator is really about taking risks, doing things that make you very, very uncomfortable, like showing up at protests. For some folks might be a co-conspirator act. For others, it might be speaking up at the PTO meeting. It might be speaking at your board meeting and saying, I know no one wants to hear this and I'm still going to say it anyways. It's holding systems and people who are empowered, holding them accountable for that and watching our children, letting them watch us model 
And eventually they're going to come to us and say, you know what, something's not fair in my world. I'm going to do something about it. And then we can support that. That's a beautiful thing to be modeling and then to see our kids actually taking those steps and, you know, taking ownership of creating that just and more equitable world. Thank you so much for, for being with us today and sharing your gift and your knowledge with us. I really appreciate it. I want to make sure that everybody gets to hear from you where they can find you and where they can purchase your book. Beautiful. Thank you. And thank you again for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation for me. Um, I hope it's been beneficial for our listeners. And you can find me on Instagram. I'm a content creator on there. So at Bert Hawthorne. If you want weekly strategies, I recommend signing up for my weekend newsletter. I only send it once a week on the weekends and it's just jam-packed of parenting strategies and also teaching strategies. And then you can purchase the book. It's available nationwide. I am so proud and excited to share it. Hit the New York Times bestselling book. So you can purchase it from your independent bookstore. Would Of course, and I'm <laughs> going to recommend shop local. But if not, you can also pick it up online as well. Beautiful. And I, we have lots of educators who listen to this podcast. And you're a consultant. Are you available for hire for school districts? I am. I am. You can check out more on my website at BrittHawthorne.com. Just hit that educators tab and you'll see some of my offerings there. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Britt. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate you. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of Um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, And definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, That's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right, that's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly, of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb, and you're already doing it. You've got this.